Game Cool Books, Episode 64. Lyratic Resolution. This is a long time coming. We're back with chapters 12 and 13 of The Amber Spyglass by Philip Pullman. Chapter 12, The Break, opens with an epigraph from Spencer. It's the largely unread, if not entirely overlooked, epic in English poetry, Spencer's long allegorical poem, The Fairy Queen. And it provides Pullman with a number of epigraphs, both in the uh, his dark materials and the Book of Dust, currently working on it. Um, in context, these lines from The Fairy Queen describe the knight Tevisan fleeing a personified despair. The full stanza goes, So as they traveled, lo, they gan espy an armed knight towards them gallop fast, that seemed from some feared foe to fly, or other grisly thing that him aghast. Still as he fled his eye was backward cast, as if his fear still followed him behind, alls flew his steed as he his bands had brast, and with his winged heels did tread the winds as he had been a foal of Pegasus his kind. It hints that it is not just Will's mother, but her susceptibility to the powers of melancholy manifested in the specters which Will fears in this chapter. Interestingly, the passage in Fairy Queen comes just after a meeting with Arthur, who gives the Red Cross Knight a medicine that any wound could heal. So Will, with his blood moss ointment, has an analog in the hero of the poem as well as this minor character who serves as a foil to St. George. In many ways, this chapter, The Break, is the culmination of everything which has been built up so far with the exception of chapters dealing with Mary Malone. As darkness falls, and Will has determined to enact his plan, the narrator shows us in quick succession how things stand. Azriel's preparations for Ragnarok are put on hold while he follows the news transmitted on the lodestone resonator. The block of stone under the lamplight becomes another stand-in for the work of the author, crafting his story. His captain in the field, Ogunwe in the gyropter, communicates by the same means. The immediate readiness for battle, represented by the Swiss guard and their crossbows, rifled and silent. These crossbows become a pun on the symbol of the church, just audible. Mrs. Coulter lies awake in the entrance of the cave. The bats are out and there's nothing for her demon to torment his horny fingers paint with the glowfly's luminescence, and her daughter is asleep yet restless, locked into oblivion. Her dream has returned. She's full of pity and rage and lyratic resolution, and her demon full of sympathy. Having drawn out the suspense so much, we then zoom in on Will and Amma. He explains the knife and shows her a window. 
but she refuses to give up the powder or to show him how to use it, so she'll come along and meet Lyra. Yorick, in his armor, is going to hold off the troops, though again it's unclear why not just bring him along and neutralize Mrs. Coulter directly. Unaware of Asriel's forces closing in, he hears a sound, but is unable to place it, never having heard a gyropter. Only Balthamos might have helped explain what was going on, but he had fulfilled his promise to help Will reach Lyra, and now withdraws into his grief, which causes some difficulty in communicating with Ama. I haven't abandoned you yet, the angel says ominously. Tialis and Salnaki on their dragonflies are above, tossed in the wind among the trees. And by the order of their placement in the story, they associate more with our main characters now and are distant from the staging of the opposed forces described before. Putting the plan into action, Will cuts a window onto a bare, rocky world, bone white under the moon, full of the sound of insects. Her fingers and thumbs moving, Ama follows, and perhaps this is the moment when Mary is showing the Mulefa her itsy-bitsy spider movements. The moonlight there shines like a lantern. This is the only world Will can find with the right conformation of ground. They plan to wake her in this world, but with the powder in her pocket, which Ama has checked and rehearsed a hundred times, she uh, insists on coming through. And this is reminiscent of the iconography of Bolvanger with its lights, this bone-white landscape. There, Lyra is taken captive too. In this case, she is not the agent of her own escape, though. It's up to someone else. And there's an even greater escape foreshadowed here in the twilight of her dreams. keep the light from shining in too much, Will cuts a tiny window to look through, but Lyra is not there. He tries to warn Ama to keep out of the way and go back and wait by the other window, which curiously is left open, I guess for speed, but this is where she insists that they both go through, because she knows how to wake Lyra with the powder, knows the cave better, and to clinch matters. Her determination is conveyed by her demon acquiring a ruff. It's a scene just like that confrontation between Lyra and Annie in Bolvanger. In this case, Ama having Lyra's determination, her lyratic resolution. It seems like Ama could have become a third main character, an equal counterpart to Will and Lyra in the first two books. But Pullman has a different story to tell. She is superficially, at least, very similar to the main character Lila of the Firework Maker's Daughter. Her presence here is more a refraction from that brilliant figure than a character allowed to fully develop. And Pullman seems well aware of the ways in which characters can be present and yet incomplete. We have the angel Balthamos, whose invisibility would come in handy, we might suppose, but he's there in his demon form to keep Will's cover instead. For a source of this angelic presence as absence, we would have to turn to Pullman's early novel, Galatea, but that's a story for another time. The cave is full of the sound of the Zeppelin engines, 
Whatever that sounds like exactly, we don't know any more than Yorick knows what helicopters or gyropters sound like. Yet somehow Mrs. Coulter is convincingly asleep at the cave mouth. And there lay Lyra. Outlines are merged, hers and her mother's, in the darkness. The light shining down now cause the uh, narrator or Will to notice that she and her demon, that is Mrs. Coulter and her demon, were awake all the time. And the emphasis throughout the scene has been on Will's looking, but not seeing. He's looking for Lyra, finds her there with her mother at last, looks and doesn't notice that her mother has been awake the whole time. He realizes that she might well have fooled him into thinking her asleep. Finally, the time comes for action. He runs headlong to his friend, and he's about to get them away through the window. But as he is about to cut with his knife, Will looks up at Mrs. Coulter. In that moment, he sees his own mother's face reproaching him. His mind left the tip, and the knife breaks. The break then, is that moment. It's something like what we saw in the Fairy Queen, a kind of despair. It's something also like Lot's wife looking back at the smitten cities of the plain, or Orpheus and Eurydice on the brink of Hades. Still, Will's reaction here is remarkably practical. He recovers quickly, has Amma still wake Lyra, so all's not lost, and he readies himself to fight. Plans to strangle that monkey first. He still has the hilt of the knife to hit with, but no attack is forthcoming. Mrs. Coulter shows the pistol in her hand, but in doing so she also lets the light shine on Amma, so she can see what she's doing, and her demon's tail brushes the powder into Lyra, so she begins to awake. and recognize the clatter of the helicopters. A man falls out of the sky. There's shooting, explosions. It's a prelude of the great war between Azrael and the Authority. There's also echoes here of that chaotic escape from Bolvanger. But given the lay of the land, we might think more of Lee Scoresby's Alamo Gulch, or perhaps the climactic battle for the Eagle Banner in The Tin Princess, Pullman's lovely counterpart to the Sally Lockhart books. Lyra stirs, but her muscles fail to act. Will recovers the pieces of the knife, with no time now to wonder what had happened. He gathers them, the metal gleaming in the light, seven pieces with the point itself the smallest. Both sides land troops. Mrs. Coulter plans to hold them captive, she has put together who the Africans are and guesses that they want the children alive. She has lured Will in, it seems. As confusing as anything about this is her look of joy and exultation in the midst of the danger. Breaking the knife, though, was not part of her plan. And when Will charges her with intending to do it, she insists that she wanted it whole, to escape with them, but that he broke the knife. And yet, she is exultant in the realization that she might still somehow use this to her advantage. 
Or is it, perhaps, that she knows there's no hope left and is going to go out in a blaze of glory? Lyra speaks for the first time now, Will's name. And she says she had this dream, but he implores her to find her strength. She's been asleep for days and days. Exactly how long we still would need to calculate. But she's desperate to be awake. So supporting her uh, with Amma's help, who is nervous, he takes in the scent of Lyra as she has taken in that magic powder that woke her. He is struck by her reality and is there holding her hand. So the break is also a transition moment in their relationship. Their bond, surely. They sit on a rock, that firm foundation of trust, and she puts her hand on Amma's shoulder in thanks. Now the battle impinges once again. A wreck prevents other gyropters from landing. Crossbowmen encroach on their position. Mrs. Coulter takes aim and fires, and though Will sees the flash, he hears nothing over the sounds of battle. He thinks that he'll rush the next time she does this. But as he turns to tell, Balthamos, the angel, is back in his own form and cowering. Will insists, you're not a coward. But a deus ex machina comes in from another source now. As Mrs. Coulter cries out, grips at her ankle, and the golden monkey, as if not feeling her pain, snatches something in midair something who calls out Tialis. It's a tiny woman, and the monkey is pulling at her arm. Now, in her pain, Mrs. Coulter threw the gun up in the air, and Will caught it, so we find ourselves in a strange stalemate at the end of the chapter. Her face distorted with pain and fury, with the spur at her neck. She says, uh, as none could move through tear-jashed eyes, uh, leaves it up to Master Will, as she puts it, for what to do next. Tialis and Salmachia, chapter 13, is directly continuous on from this action. There's a pause only for the epigraph. Frowning, frowning night over this desert bright, and rise while I close my eyes. That's William Blake, Little Girl Lost. And it provides us with some of the setting and a little bit of irony in that we're going back to sleep, it seems. So that stalemate lasts only for a moment as Will then sweeps the gun in, a, in an attack on the monkey, stunning him. Will thus breaks the taboo against striking demons, but as we've seen, that's nowhere near as ironclad as Lyra and perhaps others in her world have thought. He also breaks the standoff, uh, recognizing, after all, that he and Tialis had the upper hand. He perhaps saves Mrs. Coulter's life here by taking away the need to kill her so as to protect uh, Salmachia. Quick as grasshoppers, the uh, despise escape from the clutches of Demon and Mrs. Coulter. The three children, we're told, have no time to be in action here. They have a swift embrace. The spies, that is, making them again counterparts for Will and Lyra here. And the man assumes that he has the knife, so Will is not going to tell him the truth. 
the other child is to return to the village. That narrative space that Amma might have occupied, or Balthamos might have, the spies will instead. They get on the move, get away, through the window, behind the bush, or that's rather Will's plan. Um, the spies we see ride dragonflies as large as seagulls. Now, as they're moving away, Mrs. Coulter reaches out and cries, Lyra, my daughter, my dear one, don't go. She, too, had a brief chance of being that counterpart on their journey in this third book. But anguished, Lyra steps over her and loosens her clutch. She's sobbing. Will sees the tears, and that's just what Lyra saw to close the first book when Mrs. Coulter made her choice not to accompany Lord Asriel. They follow the dragonflies for now. There's floodlights, a leaping orange of flames. Looking back, again, there's that gesture of looking back that led to the break in the first place. We see Mrs. Coulter's mask of tragic passion, a Greek image here, but her words also connote a Christian story about a beloved child. Her love's treasure, or rather her heart's treasure, her little child, her only one. You're tearing my heart, she says, in much the same way that she spared Lyra that cutting or tearing of the demon in Bolvanger. After all, this is the only mother Lyra would ever have. And Will can certainly sympathize here with her cascade of tears. But he's ruthless. He doesn't see his mother in Mrs. Coulter in this moment. Instead, he is concerned for Lyra and leads her away to safety. His hand is bleeding again because of the blow he landed with the pistol. They see at the top of the cliff that the Africans are their best hope. Um, that's the spies again, but Will has no intention of obeying them. They're interrupted by an attack from the Swiss guard. Cry halt. These are white men with crossbows, clearly not on their side. He calls for Yorick, but someone else comes to help Will and Lyra here. It's Balthamos, um, who appears out of nowhere. The men fall back amazed. But their demons are well-trained and leap at the angel, cries in fear and shame. Will watches his guide and friend soar up and vanish. The soldiers quickly regroup. Will feels he has no choice and fires, feeling kicked by a horse. The spies leap into action, stabbing uh, with their spurs. The men gasp and die, their, Venus, their demons vanishing as well. At this point, Ama also leaves the story, dodging down a path as they run for the window. And we, like Will, have to imagine that she is safe, for we are never going to hear one way or the other. They reach the pale gleam of the window and tumble through. Will wretches in mortal horror. He's now killed two men, and that's not counting the youth in the Tower of the Angels. His body revolts at what his instincts made him do. His stomach and heart are empty. And Lyra holds Pan, while again Will is all alone here. 
the little spies are there too. They've followed them through the window. Their aspect stern. There's no doubt about their feelings. Now, the alethiometer reappears in the story at this point. Will has brought it to Lyra just as she brought it to Lord Asriel. Only she learned to read it along the way while Will has merely kept it safe. Did he find his father? She wants to know. But then she's pulled back again to that dream. It's too much to believe, she says, what they must do. Um, he's thinking, meanwhile, maybe the alethiometer will tell them how to mend the knife. But what he says is more kind, that they should move away, leave the window open. Again, it's their only way out if the knife is broken. As long as the spies think it's whole, they have the upper hand, though. And he wonders if maybe they can ask about how to repair the knife. She does. And Will sees her tuck her hair behind just as her mother did. And she does notice that Yorick is there too. And if she was reading the thermometer, she thought she was just wishing when she heard Will call her. He can mend anything including those little delicate things like the box for the spy fly. Um, Will is meanwhile concerned for Balthamos, who must have been so frightened. But of course, Lyra doesn't know who that is. And we, with Will, feel the shame the angel must have been feeling. He remarks that Balthamos told him so many things, and he's beginning to understand them. Presumably, He's thinking about Mrs. Coulter's enchantment over him, although it's not really clear. Maybe how that enchantment is functioning parasitically upon Will's love for his mother and his friendship with her daughter. Along with the narrative being continuous, we also remain in Will's point of view in this chapter. Now, Lyra's concerned for his hand, he says now that his father cured it for him, um, but it reopened the wound in the fight. He still has the blood moss ointment and uh, tells how he uh, acquired it on the mountain from his father. So she cleans his wound um, just like she's done before. And uh, we get a quick summary now from Will of the fight on the mountaintop, the revelation of uh, the angels, their journey and meeting Yorick and doing their river journey up to the mountains again. Mrs. Coulter, Lyra thinks, was kind to her, although she did such bad things. And then she comes back again to her dream, which is so clear, like when she reads the alethiometer, a clearness and understanding that goes so deep, she can't see the bottom, but again, clear all the way down. She talked to Roger a friend who Azriel had killed. And though he's dead and calling to her, it's not that she does that, that he wants her dead too. It's that they must have uh, some closure that it was somehow Lyra's fault for bringing him um, away from Jordan where they used to play, that she wants to go now and say sorry, to go and find him and say sorry. And then she trails off about what can happen after that says it doesn't matter. They can't foresee the end of their journey. 
uh, they can't talk about it. Now, Will has the notion that the dead live in a world like this one, that is, one that they can reach with the power of the knife. And they're struck by the thought. It's implicit in the many worlds hypothesis, but it's consequential in moving the story also into emphatically mythic, epic territory. Now, this is what they can ask the alethiometer about uh, where and how to get to this world. She says it's strange, and then they notice that there's some part of them, for the demons fade, their bodies decay, some third part must go to the world of the dead. That part is also responsible for thinking about the body and the demon. It's the part that does the thinking, the ghost. And they want to release, rescue the ghosts of Roger and the other children. But first, they have to get the knife mended. Again, that's Will's unspoken thought here. Now they call it to the spies who give this chapter its title. We are doing something on a minute apparatus. They want to know who they are, whose side they're on. Again, that detail of the violin case, no longer than a walnut, uh, is interrupting these more practical matters. It's kind of like the acorn message that sets La Belle Sauvage in motion. These Galavespians, their names and titles, and this role they play as spies for Lord Azriel are introduced here. As much as they reflect the main characters and step into the position of the angels, God's spies, they also recall the spy flies of the first book. They're a kind of reimagining of fairies, little people of myth and folklore. Though Pullman will introduce another version of the fairies with Diania and the secret commonwealth. And one detail in the description might also look askance at Tolkien's most famous creation. This skirt of silver that she wears, her green top, and her feet bare, the strong, ruthless, and proud, very unlike the hobbits whose bare feet uh, suggests their essential humility. These bare feet have spurs, like the gunslingers of the Wild West. And though they come from a different world, the Galavespians have the same problems. Uh, they are outlaws, and their leader, Lord Roke, is pledged to help Lord Asriel in his great outlawry against the authority. Their job is to take Lyra to her father, um, but uh, they are not trusting um, that they could do this against her will. She laughs, and Pan is uh, attacked. There's a great uh, feeling of shock, like she felt at Bullvanger, and Will snatches up Tialis this time. So we're back in a stalemate. Um, Lyra feels the cold thrill of knowing that Will would kill for her. They um, hash this out in terms of showing respect. 
um, Lyra is, in Tiala's words, an insolent child. Doesn't care for the brave men who died to save her just now. And she says, sorry, this apology that the rest of the book will uh, entail her going to give Roger. But uh, Will will not be spoken to like this. He says that respect goes two ways. Makes it clear that they are in charge and the spies can either stay and help or go back. They know, of course, they mustn't learn that the knife is broken. Um, the spies will stay and help, but they must let them know their intentions, which is fair. They plan on going to find Yorick. Um, and Lyra, of course, begins lying earnestly at this point. Um, Pan, now curious again, takes on a dragonfly form. And she wants to know if their poison is deadly, that of their spurs. Will her mother die? Tiala says it was only a light sting. And he doesn't mention the maddening pain that even that can bring. The narrator interposes. Of course, this idea of trust is raised once more. They must leave the knife behind while they go and talk. Um, they think about the uh, possibility of escape, but um, meanwhile, they must uh, at least trust one another. Um, they seem uh, fierce, but also honest. As they're falling asleep, then, um, the perspective does shift to Lyra for a minute here, thinking how lucky Will is to have her there to look after him. Though he's fearless, he's not good at betraying and lying, which comes to her as natural as breathing. She feels virtuous about it, because she does it for Will. Um, and then uh, they fall into their sleep again what will surely be just a brief nap. So, uh, my apologies again for the long delay in producing this episode. I hope that the next one will be so long. Um, I do plan on carrying through this project, uh, following Will and Lyra on their journey to the underworld and out again. And I want to get all this done before the next season of His Dark Materials and the next book, uh, Serpentine, is released in October here. So thanks again for listening and take care.